welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osatsky, coming to you from the home studio for yet another uh, pandemic broadcast of Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting on the Big Talker 1067 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region in Ontario, Canada. And I'm joined as always by my trusty colleague, David Clement, just freed from lockdown over there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? It's going well. It's going well. I feel like a new man. I was able to uh, to get my hair cut, um, which our listeners cannot see, but I was in desperate need of one. Um, so it feels good to be able to safely get back into some sort of northern, normal rhythm uh, in regards to things like haircuts. Um, little victories. If you, if we had had uh, this conversation uh, just over a year ago, and you were to say, "David, you're really excited about haircuts," I would be wondering what you were smoking. Um, but yeah, it is what it is, and hopefully, this can be the last of the lockdowns. Hopefully, we can maintain our pace of allowing for businesses to stay open safely without having to shut everything down again because i mean i can tell you from sitting in the chair at uh at the at the hair salon that it is devastating for these guys um to basically have all of their overhead rent and whatnot still apply uh, but not be able to generate any revenue and so uh thankful that they're back at it thankful that um People are, are, are able to, uh, to generate business for them again, and uh, hopefully we can, we can keep this going and keep COVID rates down uh, in the process. So fingers crossed. Yeah, it's definitely going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a new season. So uh, here where I am right now in Austria, we are able to go get our haircuts. Uh, this is just determined, but I need to show up with a negative COVID test. And obviously, my last test just expired. I've only had two tests so far, so that was a that was my second one. First one to travel, second one to get a haircut, and I didn't even get to do the second thing. But it's fine. We're looking forward. We're looking towards uh, the beautiful sunny places where they don't have these issues of these terrible lockdowns. One such place is the state of Florida, state of Florida, where they've basically been an outlier and have been able to really avoid uh, much of the terrible lockdowns and the impact that comes from that. And uh, to that end, we will have a guest uh, coming up in the next segment. We're speaking with State Senator Jeffrey Brandis of the Florida State Senate, an amazing legislator, very impressive resume, very impressive record, and uh, a consumer choice champion, uh, someone that we really enjoy having on the program. This is now his second time. So definitely a friend of the show and uh, someone that we really want to watch. I think he's a rising star. He's got great legislation, uh, definitely some great models uh, for the rest of the country and, and really for the rest of the world, because I think this guy is showing how you can get things done in, in local and state government. Yeah, yeah. An inspiration. I'm not, uh, you and I have a long track record of uh, not being particularly pleased by our uh, elected officials, but um, Senator Brandis is certainly one of the good ones. And so stay tuned for that interview. Um, quick pivot to someone whom I, leaders, the leaders that disappoint yeah, us is that to <laughs> uh, elected officials that disappoint us hot off the press. 
is Justin Trudeau's response to the question of, is China committing a genocide against the Uyghurs? And um, I think you have that clip teed up for us, Yael. So let's, uh, let's play his answer and, and- What more evidence, what more evidence does your government need to see before it concludes whether or not a genocide is occurring in China? And given we're even discussing the possibility of a genocide, is Beijing an appropriate venue for the Olympics? First of all, on determinations of genocide, uh, the uh, principles of international law uh, and the international community in general, uh, I think rightly, takes very, very seriously uh, the label of genocide and needs to ensure that when uh, it, it, it is used, uh, it is uh, clearly uh, and properly uh, justified and demonstrated so as not to weaken uh, the application of genocide in situations uh, in the past. And that's why it's a word that is extremely loaded and uh, is certainly something uh, that we should be looking at uh, in the case of the Uyghurs. And I know the international community is looking very carefully at that, and we are certainly among them, and uh, we will not hesitate from being part of the determinations around uh, these sorts of things. We have been consistent uh, in our uh, concerns and our condemnation uh, of human rights violations around the world, including uh, the situations in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang uh, and elsewhere. Uh, we will uh, continue to work with the international community and move forward uh, on making uh, the right determinations based on facts and evidence as appropriate. Hmm. So he, first off, he's passing the buck. He's saying, we're going to continue to follow the international international community on facts and evidence. We have the facts. We have the evidence. We've heard from people who are in these camps. We know that the, the conditions that they're putting them through. We know that they're doing all sorts of things to essentially cleanse, uh, ethnic cleanse this population from China. There isn't much more we need to know. And he can say, oh, well, we're going to wait on the international community. Why? What, what? I think that Canadians deserve better from our elected officials to actually stand up for our values, especially when it relates to holding other countries account for their human rights violations. And so this just seems like an incredibly weak moment for the prime minister to just sit there and kind of weaselly posture about whether or not this is or isn't genocide. We know the facts. We know it is. And it's becoming increasingly clear every day that we shouldn't be having the games there. And who is the international community? You know, I, I hear this and I feel it is a cop-out for that reason. And at least other instances that we see around the world, whenever people say the international community, they mostly mean the United Nations or the World Health Organization, or just some bureaucratic body. You know, he's not saying as soon as the United States does this, or as soon as Germany or anything else. I would argue that Canada is uniquely positioned. I don't know the number of uh, Chinese nationals who have become Canadian. There are definitely a lot of Hong Kongese and Hong Kongers who now live in British Columbia, Vancouver, Toronto, and the rest. But, you know, there's a lot of unique ties between Canada 
and China that really give Canada the upper hand. I mean, it wasn't too long ago, David, that we were talking about Canadian citizens getting kidnapped, uh, just walking the, the streets of China and being kind of brokered in, in huge hostage crises. I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff to do. I mean, the only thing in the back of my mind, and uh, you know, we definitely have talked about the CCP a lot and the Chinese Communist Party and their influence, the only thing in the back of my mind is maybe this is a play for Trudeau and the liberal government there. Uh, since the Keystone Pipeline won't go forward, there's got to be a way to ship Canada's oil somewhere. And the idea is that maybe China is that place? Uh, I don't know. Am, uh, I, am I thinking wrong? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's certainly possible. I mean, the the blunt answer that we're not going to get, if he was to be answering this off the record, would be, if I say the word genocide, it's going to cause a diplomatic crisis, and I don't want to do that. When the sure. real answer he should say is, this is going to cause a diplomatic crisis, but it is what it is. and Canadians are world leaders in terms of our approach to human rights and pointing out and holding countries to account when they violate human rights. And so it just seems so, so wishy-washy. And then you overlay that with the fact that in the past, Trudeau has used that word, the word genocide, to describe the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada. And he's used that word to describe missing Indigenous women, which is obviously a serious, serious um, problem. It was one of the major uh, issues in his first election campaign against Prime Minister Harper, whether there would be an inquiry into missing Indigenous women. And so when he talks about weakening the word, I just don't see what he's, what, like, this is just weird diplomacy in the face of... I, I actually, I, I understand his point about weakening the word, and I, I think it's much the same when people uh, bring up Nazi Germany and the Holocaust in various arguments and want to use anything that's happening today mm -hmm. uh, to past example or to, you know, modern examples. Uh, surely we heard this plenty during the Trump era. Uh, and you know, kids in cages, this kind of thing that really went too far. So you can say that definitely a problem of categorization and definitely something to where you don't want to cheapen uh, real genocides in the past. But, um, you know, I think we, we've, uh, we've seen the receipts. We've seen, we've seen the videos. We've seen, um, and now, you know, the, the lying of the Chinese Communist Party and the government has led us to this global pandemic now. You know, it, it's not that it was uh, necessarily caused at one, but we did not have the information in time and all that is, is gone to the next level. You have an entire category of ethnic peoples that are sent to re-education camps. I mean, there are plenty of stories of uh, the Falun Gong uh, sort mm -hmm. of religion and sect that uh, there are a couple of articles recently saying that basically the uh, many large publications like the New York Times and such uh, used to refer to them a lot and now don't, and they've actually had uh, angry Communist Party officials who've called up the paper, and uh, apparently there's some kind of investment deal. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's happening that shows that this is not a normal country. It's not a liberal democratic country. It doesn't follow norms. And there's every reason for a country like Canada or the United States to put their foot down and to say, look, this is not what we're about. We don't treat people this way, individuals this way. We don't treat our minorities this way. Um, yeah, so that kind of 
very strange there from from the Trudeau. Yeah. And I'll bring up an old reference, David. Um, so the a former Liberal Party leader from many years ago, Michael Ignatieff. Uh, so he's actually living in my neck of the woods. I think he lives in Vienna now. Yep. He's uh, he's the the head of the Central European University. Um, so he wrote a book called The Rights Revolution, and it was a lot about genocides and, and how you're supposed to deliver justice after these kind of things. I wonder kind of what he would have to say on this, considering, you know, he was the head of this party. He ran for election of this party. Um, it, yeah, I, I think there's 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 a lot of conflict right now, and I, I would actually be very happy if Canada took one positive step forward and, and actually said— uh, you know, this is a genocide. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the right answer to this to that question would have been, it is a genocide, and we should try and pressure the IOC to move the games because this is really bad. Um, yeah, enough on that very depressing topic. Um, hopefully, better we we can demand better from from our elected officials on this one, but time will tell. Um, what uh, what else is on your docket in terms of things you want to discuss uh, in the lead up to our interview with Senator Brandis? Yeah, so uh, I know we got a couple other things. I know we want to talk about ride sharing and uh, Uber. So let's uh, let's keep that for after our interview. Uh, there's a lot of great things that are happening and some terrible things that are happening uh, both in in Europe, in Canada, and the U.S. Uh, so we'll definitely get to that. Um, about a minute left here on Consumer Choice Radio. There's an article that I had published in the Washington Examiner, uh, for those of you who'd be interested, and it's uh, it's related to the last topic. It's about uh, global affairs and Michael Bloomberg, so a billionaire who has used his monies uh, to go around the world and try to convince uh, many different countries, including India and the Philippines and Malaysia, that they need to follow the Bloomberg regime of soda taxes, of vaping bans, of tobacco taxes, and anything paternalistic under the sun. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend that to our listeners. Uh, there's there's definitely a lot more reporting that's going to come out of that from uh, Consumer Choice Center and all of our colleagues, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes. So I uh, hope you guys stay tuned to Consumer Choice Radio We'll be right back after this break with Senator Jeffrey Brandis. Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 a.m. in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. Uh, we are very blessed today to be speaking with none other than Jeffrey Brandis. He is an American politician who is serving as a Florida state senator from the 24th district. Uh, that is St. Petersburg, Florida. He is a, a second time guest now on Consumer Choice Radio. Senator Brandis, thanks so much for coming on. Great to be with you. So there's a lot of stuff we've been hearing in the news about Florida. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of our Canadian listeners up north uh, are, are a bit uh, sad that they're not able to be snowbirds right now, not able to travel. They have their own restrictions. We're hearing about travel restrictions uh, from other states, or even uh, Joe Biden coming down on this. Tell us why is uh, why is everyone looking down so so sourly uh, at Florida when Florida seems to be doing pretty great when it comes to COVID and vaccinations. Well, I think, you know, our governor took a very different tact than what you've seen uh, governors from New York or California or other states uh, around the country. Really, he's been focused on keeping people employed, keeping businesses open, 
uh, and keeping kids in school. Uh, we know that the, the learning gains that these kids are getting at, you know, on virtual school are nowhere near what they're going to get while they're in school. Uh, and so I think his tact has been just, he's an outlier in the country and there's, uh, and, but I think it's a positive outlier overwhelmingly. Uh, I think you, if you look at our, our COVID numbers, they are substantially better than California's, substantially better than New York's. And, and we're now in the process of vaccinating. I think we've vaccinated well over a million seniors at this point. Uh, and, you know, we're working hard to, to grow that number every day. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a pressing topic here in Canada because obviously you would know there are, uh, I don't even know what the number is, but it's in the hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million, I don't know, um, snowbirds who make the annual trek down to Florida to enjoy the nice weather. I know that my grandparents, when they were alive, were part of that proud cohort of Canadians. Um, so a lot of talk about vaccinations and um, and Florida, and I, I know that there have been some people who have dual citizenship kind of kicking the tires, basically saying, okay, well, do we go to Florida for a longer period than we maybe would have otherwise? Because this seems to be uh, a state that is figuring out its vaccination process and things like that. But beyond COVID, I did want to, you, you, you mentioned schools, and this isn't something that Yael and I have gotten too deep on, but what is the relationship or what has that process been like with the teachers unions in Florida? And I, I ask this question because I know there are some really wild examples elsewhere in the country where the, the teachers union pushed for teachers to be at the front of the line for vaccinations, which I think you can make a decent argument for, but then, but then didn't want to return to the classroom um, or didn't want to have in-person learning. Yeah, so early on, the governor and the commissioner of education here in Florida decided that they were going to do everything they could to give parents options, and the and but the option had to include in-person learning, and so they laid down the gauntlet early on that no matter what happened, the schools were going to be back open. Now it was up to parents to determine whether they wanted to send their kids back to school, but they had to have that choice. And so while you've seen a lot of these conversations in, in other states occur, you really haven't seen that in Florida because early on, it was very clear that schools must reopen uh, and, and accept students who wanted to go back to school. Yeah, and definitely the, the governor has been very strong on this. I know he came out with a, a couple of tweets earlier in the week, uh, sort of going line by line of the various policies that Florida has taken and why it is actually a leader. And definitely, I think we would agree with that. Uh, just from our own lockdown uh, states, countries, and cities, I, it's just a marvel to look at. And really, it's amazing to see. Well, if, yeah, if you want to eat in a restaurant, you can come to Florida. So Jeez. that's why people are leaving you know, New York in droves, Connecticut in droves, California in droves, because they're recognizing that like their, their lives are significantly impacted. Their kids, I mean, if you think about the, the learning loss that we're going to see over the last year, for many of these kids who are, who are trying to do online learning, but that's not the way they learn best. Uh, and they're missing out on the human interaction, which is so important. Yeah, education is, is critical at schools, but we learn so many other skills by sending our kids to school uh, beyond just the education component. And so to me, the governor has made, that's a huge win. Probably the best thing that he did was keep the schools open, keep, keep kids going back, you know, giving parents the option to send their kids back to school because I think you're going to see really a profound learning loss in much of the country. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> definitely true in, in places like Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, where they're having these battles again. Um, so yeah, something that we'll definitely try to keep attuned to and Florida really is providing us with another example. I wanted to go through the and, list of some of the other topics, uh, by the way, David, you can, if you want to chime in on the education. No, I, yeah, I just had one, one, I, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but I know that there were some original rumors that some major Wall Street firms and hedge funds and basically financial centers were looking at, um, looking at Miami as a possible relocation just to say, okay, well, enough of New York, whether it be taxes or restrictions, I mean, outside of, of, of COVID, but almost like a major realignment in American finance where you're starting to see these big firms who are traditionally in Manhattan say, okay, maybe it's time we shift gears and, and move to the Sunshine State. I don't know if that's happened or if you are- It's, it's happening every day. Florida is a state with 22 million people. We're growing by about 800 people a day. We expect to be around 26 million people by the end of the decade. So I don't know, other, other states are growing at 25% over the next decade, but Florida's really looking at that, that type of number, 20 to 25% growth. Uh, and that creates an, obviously an incredible strain on the resources uh, to grow at that pace. But I think it's exciting and, and people are, you know, they vote with their feet. At the end of the day, people look at their tax bills in New York and they look at the budget deficits of some of these states and they know who they're gonna hit hardest. And so they're, they're voting with their feet and yeah, we're starting to see investment banks and hedge funds. And I mean, to the point where it's starting to affect the economies of other states because they've relied on the, the income from those hedge fund managers uh, and the tax revenue from those, those hedge fund managers to backfill their budgets. And now we're seeing those people moving to Florida and getting and establishing their families here. And it's having a real impact on those other states because Florida doesn't tax income. We don't have a state income tax. Uh, and our education is consistently getting better. We have more in our schools than any other state in the country. Uh, and we're really something we're really proud of and, and continuing to thrive on. Yeah, and I think um, that's why I'm, I'm still a proud uh, Florida tax resident. So thank you for that. Um, a couple other things. We're speaking with uh, Florida State Senator Jeffrey Brandis. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeffrey Brandis. Uh, some of the other issues that you'll be discussing or hopefully trying to pass uh, in the legislative session uh, up there in uh, Tallahassee, we have the COVID liability shield, very important for schools and businesses. We have bills on alcohol modernization, near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, adult use and medical cannabis. You had some on Fourth Amendment protections on electronic devices, uh, legalizing sports betting, finally, and also peer-to-peer -peer car sharing. Uh, so I know that you've got some some important topics uh, for consumer choice, obviously things that that we really believe in. Uh, but I wanted to get to the liability shield. I think COVID is still a huge uh, reality. Why is a liability shield something important that the uh, the state legislature should take up? Yeah. So for all of Florida's wonderful benefits, we're considered unfortunately a judicial hellhole. Uh, the the amount of litigation down here is obscene. And what we're, what we're seeing, what we're afraid of is what we call sue and settle lawsuits, where somebody says, I caught COVID at your business, unless you pay me $10,000, I'm gonna take you to court uh, and it's gonna cost you 50, 100, your entire business, we don't know. And so what we're trying to end is these frivolous lawsuits that can come because somebody says, well, I went into the local grocery store and got COVID, or I went to the local dry cleaner or pizza shop. And because of your, you know, because what you did, you know, back in March or April, I got COVID. 
Um, and we have to think about, you know, our nursing homes and hospitals and other healthcare organizations. I mean, these are essential businesses that we require to stay open. We require them to keep their residents there. Unfortunately, from March until July, really, PPE was not, you know, personal protective equipment was not readily available to the point where, you know, you would, you would see pictures of people in nursing homes wearing a, you know, a trash bag, a shower cap, and a homemade mask. And we basically asked them to MacGyver their way through a global pandemic. And so we have to, you know, they were there for us. They were there for our residents. Yes, un unfortunately, some people got COVID inside these nursing homes and hospitals. But, but frankly, you know, at least in the hospitals, that's where people were, we were sending people with COVID. So we should expect that, that it's going to be there. Uh, the, the key is they were there for us. We need to be there for them now. Uh, and I, I liken it back to, look, the Florida Senate probably has some of the most uh, extreme COVID, anti-COVID measures uh, in the country. And every week for the last six weeks, one of our members has come down with COVID of the 40 of us. And so we can't keep it out of the Florida Senate. How are hospitals who are sending people with COVID there, nursing homes that have to provide for their residents and have people coming in and out uh, as workers um, and healthcare providers? How, you know, especially when, if you think about early on, look, a COVID test early on was a thermometer pressed against your head, which is a crude tool at best for asymptomatic people. And so what would the threshold, I guess, in theory be if a business was in good faith trying to follow the public health guidelines that are passed down from the state and whatever the rules and restrictions are, whether they were capacity requirements at a restaurant or what have you, if they were making a good faith effort to try and meet the criteria from public health officials, that that is the standard in which should. Yeah, okay. that, yeah so that's correct. So, so we would provide them safe harbor from, from litigation. Uh, the, the standard in Florida, or at least in our piece of legislation, is gross negligence. So unless they purposefully, you know, for example, if they had an employee they knew had COVID, they asked him to come back to work knowing that he had COVID and he infected pe people around him, that would be considered gross negligence, not somebody who left the salt shaker on the table uh, instead of picking all the salt shakers up, which would be considered simple negligence. Um, to me, that's where you could see the rash of the lawsuits. I think setting that higher standard, and we, we've also moved it to a clear and convincing standard. So you, it's not just a preponderance of the evidence. It has to be, you have to clearly show that they committed gross negligence. Yeah, that, that, that's a big one. And, and surely, hopefully, we'll stop a lot of the frivolous lawsuits because I'm sure the, uh, the courts will be plenty. Uh, again, another judicial hellhole uh, there in Florida. So thank you so much for uh, working on that. Um, looking at the other issues uh, that we mentioned, um, I know there's there's a lot. I know that the um, I believe she's the Secretary of Agriculture. I forget the the title. Um, I forget her name, but she's I know she's big on uh, cannabis and discussing cannabis and figuring out a way to perhaps legalize in Florida. Obviously, we have Congressman Matt Gates who's also discussed it positively. Uh, sort of, I, I know that at least back when I was in Florida, uh, living there full time, this is not the not the top of the uh, the sheet issue, uh, but it seems that things are changing now. So how does uh, how does it stand now in Florida on legislation related to cannabis, uh, medical, and otherwise? So there's a constitutional amendment that is gathering signatures. They had a hearing before the Florida Supreme Court back in May of last year. We're waiting for that opinion to be released. Once it's released, it should be released really any day. 
and we're waiting for that opinion to be released. Once it's released, I think um, if it's if it says they can continue to gather signatures and if they get the requisite amount of signatures that that question is going to go on the ballot, I think it's overwhelmingly likely to pass. Uh, the the polling that we're seeing just shows that it's it's probably going to get in the mid 60s and and it requires 60 percent to pass in Florida. So. I think it's it's not a question of if it's going to happen. It's a question of when and how it's going to happen. So my key, my uh, issue is that I think the legislature should handle this issue. Um, we should keep it in the legislative framework. That way we can come back and address it over time versus having to run a constitutional amendment in the future. So that's why I propose our legislation. I think it will gain, our legislation will gain a lot of steam once the inevitability of people uh, of this constitutional amendment getting on the ballot is realized because I think that's when the real negotiations will start in earnest. And, and just for our listeners so that they know in case they weren't with us the last time you were on the show. So you are a Republican. Um, are you seeing other Republicans come around to this? And are you seeing opposition on both sides to the Democrat and Republican side? Or could we actually maybe, fingers crossed, see some sort of bipartisan agreement that this is the way Florida needs to go. It's going to be a bipartisan agreement. Uh, you, you, you really need bipartisan agreement to get to 60% in Florida. So I think you're going to see your, our piece of legislation is a bipartisan piece of legislation. And I think it's really kind of older Republicans versus younger Republicans um, as it relates to cannabis adult use. Uh, and I think most of the younger Republicans that I speak to are much more libertarian in their thinking on this topic. Uh, and, and I think that they're, they're going to be supportive of it. And so I think as we move forward here, once this constitutional amendment issue gets resolved and they start gathering signatures again, I think the whole mindset of the Florida legislature is gonna change, largely because they, they don't know what, who, who's gonna come out if this thing gets on the ballot uh, and what that, what, how that changes the dynamics. If you take you know, the fact that it will be on the ballot on the fact that essentially everybody's running because we just had a census and we're gonna redraw all the lines in 2022, and so that kind of tends to make people nervous. Let's take one of those issues off uh, uh, off the conversation and address it in the legislature. That's at least my pitch to my, my Republican colleagues. And I think we're starting to see some, some of that ice break and they're kind of beginning to wrap their arms around why I filed it and why this is the right way to go. Now, awesome, I, I, wanted awesome. to, I wanted to hop into to sports very quickly. Obviously, we sure. just had the Super Bowl yeah. and uh, just had the Daytona 500, uh, which I obviously followed. And it seems as if sports are on the up and up in Florida. It's the place to go. Hopefully we can get some Formula E back in St. Pete. Uh, I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, but uh, sports betting is another one of the bills that you've sponsored. And obviously, if, if many of our listeners don't know, the Supreme Court has allowed um, some kind of sports betting to happen. It seems it's up to every state to put forward the guidelines and the rules. Uh, what is the state of that in Florida? And uh, hopefully, what would your bill allow us to do? Does that mean we can, I can finally beat David in a couple of uh, sports bets? Well, the, I think the key thing in Florida is we basically don't enforce the laws on the books as it relates to sports betting online today. And so whether you're doing FanDuel or any of the other websites uh, that are out there, we, we, I, to my knowledge, zero people have been prosecuted in Florida for betting online. So if, if we recognize that the handle on the Super Bowl was something like $7 billion, of which a significant portion of that was probably bet in Florida online on these platforms, and you know, Florida could participate in that. Uh, my proposal is run it through the lottery, contract it out, get those providers to, to come in, 
let the lottery be the regulatory body. This is a, a bunch of states are doing it like this now uh, and, and continue to grow the market, which is already out there, which is already kind of well-established on online sports betting. But you know, there's no reason that that should be illegal in Florida, especially if we're not gonna enforce the laws on the books today. That's quite, quite, a, quite a movement there that we have in Florida, and it's being led by State Senator Jeffrey Brandis. Thank you so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we'll be checking in with you a lot more. Uh, best of luck in all of your endeavors up there in uh, Tallahassee. Thanks. We'll talk soon. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. A fantastic interview with Senator Jeffrey Brandis, a friend of the show. Um, yeah, I mean, just a just an all-star legislator. Great to see, uh, great to see someone putting consumer choice uh, in the front and and in the front and for uh, the front of public policy. Uh, I think not a lot of legislators have the guts to do that. So appreciate him joining us. Um, which actually brings us to uh, a bit of a, a local issue here in the greater Toronto area is the call for ride-sharing regulations. Um, and I know, Yael, you and I have talked about this off-air, uh, but this really grinds my gears. So what's been created here is uh, a, a campaign called Ride Fair, and they released a, a press statement last week arguing that the city of Toronto needs to either start adding extra taxes or capping the availability of Uber and Lyft, and that they should take the funds um, and use them to fund the Toronto transit system. Uh, so they said that the TTC has lost upwards of 70 more, 74 million in lost revenue because of ride sharing. And this bothers me for a variety of reasons. So one, it completely lacks any type of self-reflection. Um, so if that figure is true, which I can't confirm, why are consumers opting to go with ride sharing over the transit system? And why does the transit system seem to have no interest in making itself more consumer friendly? Uh, uh, granted, it's been a while that since I've been on the TTC, mostly because of the pandemic, but it would surely help if they were maybe focused on getting cell service like they do in other major urban markets, if <laughs> they had power plugs, if, um, if it was clean, if it wasn't delayed all the time, um, if you could get reliable Wi-Fi, I mean, these are all very simple, basic things. Like we don't even have, this is my opinion here, but I don't feel like the TTC is really even making an honest effort to be more consumer friendly. And instead now they're trying to lobby the government to limit consumer choice and to take options away from consumers so they can, so, so that they can increase the market share that they've lost to ride sharing. And that really, really bothers me. And so I'll be writing more on this. I know, Yael, you've discussed that issue um, in other jurisdictions. Uh, and we've been very loud about this in other jurisdictions like New York City. Um, but yeah, just a really, really gross example of rent seeking, um, which is disappointing. So we'll be front and center trying to fight that in favor of consumer choice and the, the wonders that the sharing economy uh, provides us. And I think I would love 
to uh, to get a little controversial on the program, David, and maybe have your buddy Thorben on and have a real time real time debate. That's not a bad so idea. Thorben that I I'm discussing that. Uh, is, I believe, the the press spokesman of the Ride Fair yes uh, T O campaign. Um, yep. Yeah. Let's let's try to do that. So this, yeah, it is interesting, and I I love the idea of uh, discussing the different mass transit and uh, public transit systems and and their relationship to many of these these different sharing economy apps. Some areas have actually done a very good job of integrating them. Uh, so definitely, if any of you are in a large city, um, I know that surely in in the South in the U.S., if you were to go. Uh, to a certain place and you use the Google Maps, it'll give you all the options and you'll say, okay, well, you can take uh, the public transport for this route and then you can take, you know, your Uber or your Lyft for the rest. So everything kind of works together. And, you know, there are situations where you would use one and not the other. And you're definitely right mm-hmm. that many of these public transit systems have to respond to consumers. You know, they have to be in the 21st century if they want people to be able to use them. I know that in your situation, you know, maybe be have better routes, more times. Um, surely, there's a lot of questions about how often they clean these things. I love the uh, point about cell service, which is important. I mean, at least in uh, in Vienna and some of the others, you know, we've got USB plugs. Um, I've seen the ones in Switzerland. You know, they've got little monitors mm-hmm. that anyone can use. You know, touch screens and all this kind of stuff. And it's as if you know they've really answered um, consumer demand there and done a good job. And the only problem I see, again, with the Uber Lyft story continuing on, and we are shameless advocates of the sharing economy, we don't care about any particular company. It's about the right to access any of these technologies. It's one of the main reasons we even founded our organization. And it really comes down to everyone sees this large behemoth company from the U.S., from Silicon Valley, and assumes it's just coming through and siphoning up money. Uh, But that's not true. You know, they sell an application and a service, and that service is used by millions of people around the world. It improves their lives, it lowers their costs, gives opportunities to drivers. Uh, It's something that, Mm -hmm. you know, should not be penalized for that reason. And uh, I think it provides all of us a great alternative and uh, sad to see that uh, there's this new campaign. But uh, hopefully we can debate that Mm -hmm. over the next few weeks and, as you said, make some changes. And and really quick, just to, to give listeners... Uh, a picture of the scope of the types of groups who agree with us on this. So when New York City went to cap their Uber drivers, so basically uh, to stop um, new drivers from entering the market, one of the loudest voices against it was Al Sharpton and the NAACP and, and other civil rights groups pointing out that the sharing economy, because it's it's double blind in a sense, right? You, it's blind in terms of um, any any racial issues that you could have in terms of picking riders up. You don't know that, uh, and it's blind in terms of route. And so the app uh, discourages or eliminates many instances um, where minority populations uh, in New York City, for this example, were having trouble accessing things like taxis. Um, and so the NAACP came out very loudly and said, no, 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 we appreciate the, the services that Uber is providing, both on the rider and the driver side, and we're against these additional regulations. And so I'm sure we will have a lot more on that topic 
um, coming up. Yeah, and this is a situation uh, that is about you know taxation and trying to create a level playing field. We've heard much of the rhetoric before. Uh, sometimes in various cities, or what I wrote about this week is in the European Union, it's about the classification of the drivers, whether they should be employees or contractors. Uh, that's more a question of the labor markets and labor regulations. Uh, but there are always going to be ways that many different uh, actors and vested interests and governments will try to limit your consumer choice and to try to pass these reforms that will make it more difficult to have alternatives mm. Uh, so that's very sad to see. Um, and then thankfully, in the state of California, we have an example where uh, this sort of labor reform uh, was voted down by the voters in a referendum uh, that was uh, Prop 22. Uh, this had to do with the AB5 anti-contractor law, which we discussed ad nauseum on our program. You can go back to consumerchoiceradio.com and listen to those. We spoke with uh, Commissioner uh, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr on this topic, something he's very passionate about as well. And we're going to see much more of this. And it doesn't stop at the sharing economy when it comes to cars. Uh, there's the same with Airbnb, David, which I know you've covered there in Ontario and mm -hmm. throughout Canada. Uh, there's going to be a lot when it comes to peer-to-peer -peer car sharing and car rentals. Uh, I mean, this, this, it does not end. And uh, there are those who want to stop all types of disruption. Uh, but the plain fact is that disruption helps consumers, it lowers costs, it increases innovation. And it's one of the principal reasons why our generation, despite everything that's happening, we're living better than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's time, it's time for these legacy industries to take a good long look in the mirror and say, okay, where, where have we lost our way and how do we get better? And unfortunately, the lever that they want to pull policy-wise is almost never how do we get better. It's how do we lobby government to add in restrictions that benefit us. Um, and so, yeah, not to sound too much like a broken record because there's lots more to talk about still, but um, just a, a really uh, uncomfortable development. And hopefully for consumers in Toronto, they don't generate any steam and this uh, quickly fizzles away. Yeah, and there's going to be various things in, in some cities, and I know that even in the province of British Columbia, consumers did not even have this option at all, right? So I think it's it's a next level to say, all right, well, we have this available for our consumers, we have this available for the people in our area, but we're going to continue to cut that off. So yeah, definitely a lot going on there. Um, another topic, uh, David, that unfortunately we did not get to discuss too much with State Senator Brandis there in the last segment was about modern alcohol policy and alcohol reform. So he is leading the charge on that in Florida. Florida's actually fairly good on alcohol policy. Uh, they've actually had some some very good uh, reforms in the past couple of years. They do have a lot of microbreweries micro and all of this. Mm -hmm. So Florida is a leader, um, but uh, I know that there there's a lot a of stuff happening there. Yeah, and there's a new cool development in Ontario. Uh, the ACGO just put a notice out that 7-Eleven, um, I think they have 70 or so franchises in Ontario, or that's how many are applying, are applying for a permit to serve alcohol in their stores. Um, so to essentially have like some sort of bar set up in their stores. And I know from the response on Twitter, some people were kind of scratching their heads because they couldn't envision themselves doing that. Um, but for me, that's great. That's exciting. Uh, I mean, they should be able to sell alcohol to go, and eventually they will when Doug Ford gets around to fixing the beer store monopoly. Um, but yeah, super 
exciting news from the consumer perspective is that it's, it's, it's a, another instance in where you're allowing a business to sell something responsibly to people who want it. And uh, that's, that's of great benefit to us. So um, a great show here on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you all for joining us and uh, we'll chat next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.